Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 600. Doo, 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 doo. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for listening and sharing and making this show what it is. It's just a real treat to get to serve you and to hear your feedback and requests and keep making something that you find valuable. So thank you. I look forward to the next 600 episodes and I uh, very much appreciate you here. Uh, we're going a little bit meta here for episode 600. We're talking about uh, learning how to learn all the better. We got two real pros experts on the topic, and you'll learn one, three simple tactics that drastically improve how we learn, two, why you want the learning process to be difficult, and three, how to get into the optimal mental state for learning. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, check out awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP600. And if you're visiting awesomeatyourjob.com, here's a great learning tool we got for you. It's called the Gold Nuggets. This provide summary wisdom from Sanjay and Luke and all the guests who've gone before them in an email you can read within just three minutes. I suggest you do some effortful recall uh, before you read that as a review tool. And that's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's the story with Sanjay and Luke. Sanjay Sarma is the head of open learning at MIT, a professor of mechanical engineering by training. He has worked in the fields of energy and transportation computational geometry, computer-assisted design, and has been a pioneer in RFID technology. He has an undergraduate degree from IIT Kanpur, as well as advanced degrees from Carnegie Mellon and UC Berkeley. Luca Quinto is a science writer who covers learning and education, as well as aging and demographic change in his role as a researcher at the MIT Age Lab. His work can be found at publications such as the Washington Post, Slate, the Wall Street Journal, and The Atlantic. He's a graduate of Boston University's science journalism program. Big thanks to Sanjay and Luke for sharing their wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here are Sanjay and Luke. Sanjay and Luke, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. So maybe we'll just go right off the bat. You know, what's the big idea behind the book RASP? Well, the big idea is that we today in learning need to focus more on access and more on co making content cognitively friendly. And we sort of have it backwards. We make stuff cognitively unfriendly, uh, perhaps not intentionally. And then we struggle with access and inclusion, and we end up sort of weeding people out of the system, you know? Mm -hmm. And in fact, we, you could go so far as to say is 
all the things we do to quote unquote identify talent sometimes can step on the cognitive processes that make learning happen. Intriguing. So could you share an example in terms of some cognitively unfriendly practices that we'd be better off without? Well, there's a myriad. I mean, just one of one very simple one is every lecture is 45 minutes, half an hour, an hour, and we wag a finger at a student who seems to lose interest. But in fact, the way the brain works, um, you really, it's hard to absorb material for more than, you know, 10 minutes or so, right there, right, right off the bat. And then we, for example, treat forgetting as something like it's, it's something that's this learner, it's their fault. Uh, whereas forgetting is very central to all of learning, you know? Yes. I'm intrigued. So 10 minutes already, so much I want to dig into. And so what's sort of the best practice then after 10 minutes? Is there sort of a break or a refresher or a mental palate cleanser you'd recommend? Or what's sort of the best practice? Well, after 10 minutes, um, there's so many things you can do. But the first thing is take a break. Uh, but then uh, the other thing you want to do is actually do something called a testing effect. It turns out that what you've learned in the last 10 minutes, uh, if you personalize it a little bit and say, well, you know, what, what did you learn, Paul, Pete? You know, what, what was that? What was that? It promotes learning. And then you can start the next chunk. But then there's other stuff. Maybe, Luke, you can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the testing effect is sort of a sort of a big uh, theme that comes up in the book. Um, there's something called uh, effortful retrieval, which is which is a major could be a major boon to long term remembering. Um, one of the key uh, researchers we talked to um, for the book are the, uh, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, and um, they have a really intriguing set of practices around retrieval and um, metacognition. And basically, one of the big ideas is that when you forget a, an item to be remembered, it's not just it's not just being lost to you. What's happening is all the competing misconceptions and and confusing little ideas around that item are also being forgotten. And then when you re-remember that item, the true memory without those competing, conflicting, uh, interfering associations comes back and it becomes a much stronger memory. And so one thing you can do with a pretest before your big final exam, for instance, is you can force yourself to have what's called an effortful retrieval that sort of strips away all these competing memory associations and you get left with a, with a strong, long-lasting memory. Oh, right. So then is that the value in the forgetting there? Is that uh, provides us that opportunity? There's a lot of value in forgetting. There's a value all the way down to the neurons and all the way up to the things that Luke was talking about. So the neuronal level, what happens is that when you're about to forget, if you get reminded of something, the essentially the brain establishes more physical neural neuronal pathways, which make you know which make the memory firmer. So that's one thing. But then if you go up higher to the higher levels, you get rid of um, interfering memories, which is what Luke is talking about. So the interfering memories go away, and you've sort of re-established your memory in a much cleaner way. So there's a whole variety of of uh, a spectrum of uh, benefits to just begin to forget something and then mm -hmm. to uh, relearn it. All right. Well, I'd love to zoom in a little bit in terms of, so you're playing a big game on a global stage and when talking about sort of uh, access and, and all kinds of cool impact there. I think about our listeners, specifically professionals, could you lay out, you know, what's really at stake here for them in terms of if they're learning optimally or suboptimally? How significant is that impact? Look, 21st century, you know, I like to joke that the 21st century begins in 2021, right? I mean, COVID's this big reset. Um, so um, we are going to enter an economy in which learning is central. I mean, 
the half-life of skills is shorter, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the future of work, there's a lot of stuff written about it. We are learning animals and we're going to have to learn for the rest of our lives to stay abreast. It's just the way it is. And so the ability to learn and to apply these tricks is central. It's sort of like, imagine if the way we our education system is constructed today, it's sort of like telling someone you can exercise for the first four years of your life and then you're ready for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to, you know, going to the gym three times a week. So learning's got to become that, right? I mean, uh, and Luke and I talk about it uh, it's at some level in the book about how learning is uh, very important. All right. Well, I really want to hear, you've got a story in the book about a law school in Florida that incorporated some cutting edge learning strategies and they saw a dramatic improvement in their bar exam passage rate. Can you share the story? So talking about the pre-testing uh, effect that we were talking about earlier, right? And that um, that's sort of one half of what these wonderful uh, researchers, the Bjorks call desirable difficulties. And the, the effortful retrieval that strips away these competing memory associations that lets you form a really long-term memory, right? The other half is called metacognition, which is basically how we think about our own state of knowledge. So let me just rewind and then we'll catch you right back up to the law school, FIU law school in, uh, in Miami. Metacognition. So back in the sixties, for instance, the researchers thought that what we know about our own thoughts was sort of a static measure, sort of like a, an engine oil dipstick, right? Where you just kind of reach in and you say, well, I'm trying to get a sense of what I know about subject X. Here's what it is. But as the Bjorks, especially Robert, showed in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it's more like a, it's more like an active measure. It's more like a speedometer. And how we gauge how we know in part comes from how easy it is to summon that information in the moment. And that introduces a number of biases. If you, if you have some new fact open on the, t- in a textbook right in front of you, that can lead you to believe that you're going to remember that fact come test time, right? If you are seeing a fact in a true or false uh, question, um, you know, is hemoglobin the molecule in red blood cells that delivers oxygen to cells? You can, you might be able to answer that in a true or false, but then you might not be able to answer a point blank, what is the molecule? Mm-hmm. And that false sense of knowing, the false sense that your knowledge of a given subject is not going to change, we know that's not true, right? We know that forgetting happens over a certain curve, it's called the forgetting curve, is one of the well most well-known studies or effects in, in psychology. And so when you combine uh, this metacognition stuff with uh, effortful retrieval, you get what's called desirable difficulties where you have these techniques you can apply while you're studying that will sort of steel plate memories for the long term. And one of the things that Lewis Schultz, who is the head of sort of reinvigorating this FIU law school program did was he just went all in on these, on these and, and, and other really important uh, study techniques. And just they instituted a mandatory class for all first year law, law students at this school to start studying how to study using these techniques. And so prior to the beginning of this program, this program started in 2015 uh, it was, you know, a respectable but middling law school in, in Florida in terms of bar exam passage rates, kind of bounced around the middle of the rankings. And they instituted this program where every student is taking this course on how to study as a first-year law student. And then if you're sort of in the bottom of your class, it's mandatory that you continue st- these studies in your second year. And then I think there was 
another mandatory semester or effectively mandatory since everyone takes it because it works so well in the third year. But the effect was this program rocketed to the top of its uh, rankings for the state in Florida. Now it's always number one or number two in terms of bar passage rates in Florida. And in terms of ultimate bar passage rates, which is uh, the number of uh, the percentage of people who pass the bar within two years of graduation, it's top 15 in the country. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable. And one of the big takeaways that we found from this story is you have all these students, these law students who frankly would have flunked out before this. And now with these techniques that are that are focused on making learning cognitively user-friendly, right? We're, we're retaining that talent that would have been wasted before. Well, that's very encouraging and quite a testament. So lay it on us. What are some of the most uh, hard-hitting, effective techniques that you think professionals should be using when they're trying to learn new skills or get that flowing for them? Well, uh, here are a few. Do it in short sprints. And actually, if you go to YouTube, you know, watch something on YouTube, you'll find that and naturally, without perhaps even understanding the science, you know, just because of our instincts. Uh, people have made their videos very short, a few minutes, five, 10 minutes. The second thing is, at the end of the video, apply the testing effect and ask yourself questions about the stuff you learned, right? So uh, the third is, space it out a little bit. Wait some time. Ask yourself the next day, do you remember it? Ask yourself a month later. I do this all, all the time. I'll watch something, and then like a month later, I'll try and recall. And rather than blame myself if I forget, I go, wow, that's an opportunity because now my brain's going to really learn. So I, you know, cleans the whistles a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Here's another one, very strange. Interleave, that's part of the effortful uh, learning, the desirable difficulties. What that means is switch. So let's say you're learning two similar things, right? And you're doing solving problems or something, you know, if you're trying to ask questions, answer questions. Ask, answer questions about the first topic, then the second topic, and then the first topic and the second topic because it forces you to reload, you know? If you continuously answer questions about the first topic, you're not reloading that information. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of reload that program, right? So do that. Bottom line is this. At, at some level, there's an illusion of learning. You know, we think we're learning. You know, there's, there's a lot of biases that Luke talked about, you know, stability, foresight, all that stuff. There's a, you know, we won't bore you with the, uh, the details, but there's an illusion of learning. For example, if you reread material with a highlighter and just highlight everything, you feel like you learn because you became familiar with it. It's illusion, but it's an illusion. But when you're actually learning, it feels effortful, right? And you go, oh my God, I'm not learning because it's, I'm struggling. But actually, you might be learning better. That's the strange sort of optical illusion, you know, related to learning, right? Luke, why don't you add to that? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there, it, this applies not only to, uh, to egghead kind of stuff, right? This, you could use this as an athlete. You could, there's a classic, classic study of, I think it's third graders doing the beanbag toss, right? The goal is to do a beanbag, hit, hit a target with a beanbag from three feet away. You have an experimental group throwing from two feet away and four feet away, but never three feet away. And you have a control group throwing from three feet away. And the experimental group who have never practiced the three foot throw on exam day or what have you outperformed the, the kids who have been practicing at three feet. And you can, you know, you, you can take that to the driving range, right? If, and this is, this is a classic example that, that Bob Bjork likes to talk about. He's a passionate golfer. If you're just hitting the same club over and over again at the, at the driving range, you're not reloading the cognitive program for how to swing a golf club. You're just kind of rerunning the same program. Mm-hmm. So he recommends pull out the driver, hit a few, then switch, aim at a different distance with a different club, switch to a different club, keep switching, keep switching. 
And, you know, that, that applies whether you're studying hard facts, whether you're practicing the piano. The thing that makes it a difficulty is that initially you might be discouraged by the progress you make. And in fact, you might actually make less progress initially than you otherwise would have. But in the long term, you, you'll see the benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had uh, David Epstein on the show talking about range and sharing some similar takeaways there. And so what's interesting is any topic or skill naturally has many sort of sub-skills or subtopics under it. So if I wanted to learn direct response copywriting, that's of interest to me. There's many sub-skills associated with, well, there's the consumer research, and then there's the intriguing um, headlines, and then there is trying to pull people in deeper over sort of a, a longer period of time with paragraphs. And so in following these best practices, the best move would be to do short spurts of maybe 10 minutes of learning and then do some effortful retrieval and then maybe shift gears from one sub-skill or subtopic uh, to another and then back and forth. That's exactly right. You put it well, it's the reloading, right? Can you reload mm-hmm. that and then can you reload this? Can you, can you reload that? Not load that and then keep doing the same thing, right? Because it's the reloading that's the problem. Yeah. And um, yeah, you're, you're describing it right. By the way, the business of breaking down a complex task into subtasks that's something good teachers do. That's what great coaches do. I mean, if, you, if you've noticed, you know, the great, uh, like in tennis, the great coaches are not necessarily great players, right? Brad Gilbert coached uh, Andrea, uh, you know, Agassi for some time, but he wasn't a great player. He was a good player, right? But because <laughs> he appreciated what great play was, he was able to sort of break it down. That's, and there's techniques for that as well. Um, and then you want to do exactly what you described. It's funny how great players don't always turn out to be great coaches. It, it's often... A pretty good player it turns out to be a great coach. It's really interesting. In fact, uh, it's called the expert blind spot because you got to be really, really sympathetic to the learner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but the expert has a blind spot. You go, why can't you get that? <laughs> oh, you know, geez, because you're an expert and I don't. And you need to sort of understand what I don't get. Yeah, yeah. And as a learner, that just sort of compounds the frustration in terms of, like, I already know I'm not doing this well. And the fact that I'm apparently displeasing you <laughs> is just making it worse for me. That's why professors exist, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> because parents fall into that trap all the time, I can tell you as a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, so then I know you've done some research on learning styles, but I, I want to know a bit about to what extent is that off base? And how should we think about sort of different modalities in terms of I'm watching a video or I'm reading something or I'm listening to something or I'm trying it out on myself. How do we think about the styles and the best approach? So uh, the, uh, you know, there's uh, the problem with uh, a lot of uh, this learning stuff is that um, there are very subtle findings. And then sometimes people sort of run with them and turn them into something they're not, right? So the whole learning styles things, there's no basis and there's no pro. It's never been proven. It's, if anything, it's uh, discredited as an approach. It's not like some people are, you know, learn better by hearing and some people learn better by you know, video or something like that. There is research in how to mix modalities. That there is research. Mayer is a professor did a lot of work on that. So there is research on that. But the deeper concept, the deeper thought here is that this field that Luke and I talk about in this book has been explored in the past, but it's also led to a lot of faddishness, which then falls into convenient buckets. And I wouldn't it be great if you know some people were just visual and we could just bucket them into visual and put them in the visual classroom and just you know, it sort of goes, runs amok a little bit. So that's the whole problem with the with the learning styles argument. It's, but really creating an, an excellent learning environment takes effort, takes thought, 
And you, it's not that simple that you can just say the person is a visual learner, you know? And that's sort of what we talk about in the book. It's pretty nuanced, it's pretty subtle, and you got to understand it, you know? Uh, and understand as much as possible. And also, it's changing fast, right, Luke? That's right. Um, yeah, I, I would say that people um, take a lot of comfort in the learning styles thing sometimes. And that comfort that you take is not misplaced. You know, the, the, the origin of that came from some of Howard Gardner's work where he saw people who had type, different types of strokes. And you could, for instance, have your language skills impacted, but not your numbers, number skills at all, right? Mm -hmm. And that helped him formulate his idea of um, multiple intelligences, which is, you know, still a really interesting idea. And it suggests that what might be measured in a standard sit-down IQ test or an SAT in, in no way encompasses, you know, your, your total powers as a learner. And, you know, when, when we say learning styles isn't something that we put much stock in, that, that is not to say that you should take your SAT score as your sum total value as a learner. That That is, you know, SAT scores uh, and IQ tests capture a very narrow window probably of, of what people are capable of. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so then this is helpful in terms of figuring out some best practices and some sort of uh, mistaken ideas that may not have as robust uh, a research base behind. I just want to make sure we talked about the phrase effortful retrieval a couple of times. I'd love it if we could, you know, hit a few examples of that. I I've heard of the Feynman blank page technique in terms of your saying, okay, I'm going to teach this as though to someone new, or I've got a blank page. I'm just going to write down, you know, how this process works or my true understanding of it. What are some of the other approaches to do an effortful retrieval? The simple answer, honestly, is for, for if you're in mid-career mid and um, you're thinking about ways to, to improve, to be really blunt, there, you know, there are programs online, M MITx, which, you know, we're, is the home team program and we're a little biased, we're, we'll build in little uh, uh, quizzes and, and games and so forth to, to sort of force that in between in between video lectures and, and things like that. So there there are ways you can force that to happen just by choosing choosing a program or choosing an approach for your for your continuing education. Okay. Yeah. For example, you learn something, right? Mm -hmm. a, a book, you read a chapter. There are questions at the end. No one wants to take on those questions because they yeah. have they involve effort. You just skip over them. Mm -hmm. Answer the questions. Try it. I know it's effortful, but you learn better. Right? So that's, and that's the testing effect, by the way. That's good. Right. So it's strange. The more tests you take, actually, the better you learn. And these are formative tests as opposed to summative. In other words, you're taking their friendly tests. It's not like someone's grading you on them. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one very simple example. The other one we talked about is switch topics, switch topics, et cetera. So these are all examples. Uh, but a lot of the um, systems out there sort of do it automatically, you know, as, as Luke was talking about. Mm hmm. And if you don't have the advantage of some of those systems or, or the games built in or thoughtful questions at the end of the chapter, are there some self-prompts you might recommend for folks to engage with? Yeah, make up a question. For example, look for ways to break what you just learned, right? Mm -hmm. Look for, actually, now I'm saying this as, a, as an academic professor, you know, someone who teaches, and I learn a lot, I'm going to have to keep because of my research. There's always some nagging doubt, and it takes a little bit of introspection to identify that doubt. And mm -hmm. you'd rather bury it, but you identify it, you surface it, and you sort of, you know, uh, self-analyze, you know, psychoanalyze your, your doubt. Uh, that's effortful. That actually helps a lot, and that's something that's become very instinctive for me. Mm -hmm. So analyze the doubt. Don't bury it. You know, don't just uh, whitewash it. 
Yeah, that's great. In, in terms of like, where might this not work or not apply? Or what about this counterexample that doesn't seem exactly. to fit or follow the theory or the principle? Yeah, try and apply it. That's the other one. Try and apply it somewhere. You learn something, apply it to, a, let's say it's a management thing. You learn something in management, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, use this technique. Well, apply it and figure out. Porter's five forces. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Porter's five forces. Sure. So there we go. All right, let's take a look at the uh, mobile phone industry and exactly. uh, put those five forces on there. Okay. That's good. Well, there's a lot of conversation right now about, uh, hey, in-person versus uh, remote learning. I'm sure we could talk for hours about that alone and how it impacts um, you know, children and folks in college. What are some key perspectives that we should bear in mind as, as professionals in this game? Look, um, the elephant in the room is engagement in remote learning, okay? Uh, so let's leave that elephant out for the time being. Let's kick it out of the room and come back to it. Okay. Um, it turns out that, there, you know, if you look at the learning process, what, what makes learning work? Curiosity, which you talk about, right? Curiosity is incredible because if you're curious, the brain releases dopamine. It's called the dopaminergic circuit. You learn better. Then there's the actual content presentation, right? Uh -huh. Then there's all the fun but effortful parts like Q&A, discussion, arguments, applying it, doing something with it, right? All that stuff. Projects, forgetting and relearning it in a different context. You learned it in a different context, but you need to recall it because in a project you need to pull out the stuff you learned, right? So just to look at the classroom right now, um, what we do in the classroom is we do lectures. And the lecture is the one thing actually you can do online. Fair enough, yeah. And even online, you can do it asynchronously, which is what these YouTube videos do, like Khan Academy, Three Blue, One Brown, etc. And the things that actually we couldn't do online, we sort of don't do as much of in the classroom. We ignore it, hmm. right? It's a tragedy actually, right? The things we should have been should be doing online, we do in the classroom. And the things we could do in the, in the classroom, we sort of don't do very much of. And we're, we're talking about discussions. We're talking about hands-on contextualization of what of what you've learned, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it's almost as though you have a learning as a delivery mechanism where you have lectures that are that's introducing uh, knowledge to you for the first time, right? And then you have learning as a steeping mechanism to, to steep in the information that you've learned after it's been delivered. And, you know... That's when you're talking about lab activities. That's when you're talking about discussion sections where, where the knowledge ping pongs around the room. And I think what, what Sanjay is saying is, you know, a really good way to do that initial burst of knowledge is, is a video lecture. But if you want to, you really have to do that second part, the ping ponging of knowledge around the room. And that's what's really ideal for um, in-person learning. And, and, you know, you'll hear sort of buzzwords like flipped classrooms where you would, for instance, watch uh, your lecture content at home, and then you're taking part in discussions and you're doing your homework with your teacher at hand to answer questions in the classroom. That's, that's some of what we're talking about here. And then, you know, so today and during COVID, um, students are taking stuff remotely, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem is what we've done is we've, we've done something that we shouldn't be doing, which is these lectures with the professors are droning on, you know, and we put it online. So of course, students are going to disengage, right? So uh, we would say, that the right thing to do is use the Zoom to do the interactive stuff, get students excited about something, and then use an asynchronous video where they consume the material. Then come back to Zoom and as best as you can, you know, make up the in-person stuff, discussions, etc. Obviously, you can do a chemistry lab in, you know, over Zoom. You sort of can actually, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> right. So there's a sort of a we sort of have it backwards right now. And in some ways the Zoom lecture is exposing the problem, you know. 
And in fact, when COVID ends, we're going to go back to the classroom and what are we going to do? Recreate the Zoom lecture, except everyone's in the same room. Unfortunately, that's where we'll end up, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I want to hit that curiosity point because it is really important. And um, I guess if you're not feeling curious, but you got to learn something, how do we stir up some curiosity? So, yeah, there's some really interesting work about that. Um, It's important, first of all, to think of curiosity. It is a drive state in the brain, right? Like the sensation of hunger and the sensation of curiosity are are not actually that different. They're both something that the brain experiences as, as something you really want, right? In one case, it's food. In the other case, it's information. Now, how does the brain determine what information is worth wanting? That's, I mean, that's a really interesting and, and uh-huh. constantly unfolding question, right? But there's some very fascinating work being done around this where you have a study, for instance, where people are being presented with uh, trivia questions, right? As a means to to trigger curiosity. And then they'll be presented with a completely unrelated set of information to remember. And if they are in a curious state due to the trivia questions, they'll remember that unrelated pile of, of information better. It's as though curiosity creates this global state of stickiness for information mm-hmm. in the brain. And um, it, it's really, really fascinating. So, you know, one thing we have to uh, really take on actively is how to promote that that sense in the classroom or whether you're learning on your own and you try to, to promote it for yourself. And th- there is a lot of interesting discussion about what actually promotes that feeling. You know, is it just the impression that something new to know is available? Like, no, that's that's probably not it. Sometimes it's called neophilia. And like, if that were true, we would always be curious about what's down in a scary, dark basement, right? And we're often not curious at all to find out what that is. But um, one really interesting theory uh, that comes up in the book is this idea that we have the sense that the information at hand is something that will modify what we know in a, in a meaningful way. That might be something that would trigger curiosity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Teachers have been doing this for a really long time, right? Like that's what the Socratic method is kind of about. It's about framing things as questions, right? Yeah, I mean, the I think the thing about curiosity. I mean, there are, I'll give you some tricks for curiosity. So, because I have to elicit curiosity in students when I teach, right? I figured I have to do it to myself. All right. And and the way did one one technique is wonder about the history, right? I mean, pick a topic, five forces. You know, mm-hmm. how did it happen? Who was Porter? Why did he arrive at it? What problems did you look at? Right? Who, who? What were other? Was it a three forces problem? You know, approach mm-hmm. that failed because two forces are missing. Right. So that's one technique. So you have to sort of figure out what gets you going. Right. Why is it right? Critique it. That's another one. Why does it work? Let me see if I can break it. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of related to effortful, but you've got to sort of get the juices flowing, and this equivalent of saliva for hunger is dopamine, right? Well, that's intriguing how with the Socratic method and these questions about the history or why does it work or where might it not work, it's like the questions alone are getting some drive going. And Bob Cialdini has this in his book, Persuasion, which I think is excellent, is that if we could start with some mystery, like how the heck did this come to be? Or that doesn't seem to make sense. What's really going on here is handy. But even if you can't summon it for the thing that you need to learn, 
it sounds like I can just go ahead and uh, get it from somewhere else and then shift gears quickly into the thing I need to learn. And that's helpful too, right there. That's what Luke just described, right? The mm-hmm. trigger question. You get curious about something else. You quickly learn the thing you aren't particularly curious about. You're going to learn it better. Right. Preferably not the right approach, but... <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a longer lasting memory. You know, that's that's not going to give him the context you need, but the memory will last longer. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Okay. I just just another thing is if if you're encountering a new body of information for the new for the first time, something that can be really helpful is just to just to look it over, ex- examine it, and it's really confusing, right? And it's, and it's and it's bothersome. Build in enough time to get a night's sleep and then come back to it. Uh, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, reorganization of long term memory that happens overnight, and um, you would be surprised at what makes sense in the morning. I'm sleep on it, right? Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, I know that um, you talk about learning and technology. We can sort of go overboard when it comes to tools and platforms and software. But uh, I've got to ask the pros here. Are there some really cool tools that you think your typical professional can utilize to give their learning a, a jolt? Maybe it's an app or software or or even just sort of a, a low-tech technique. Yeah, you know, a lot of tools use the stuff. Uh, obviously, the MOOC platforms, because they have Q&A built in and most MOOCs have short videos. You know, I'm going to shout out, give a shout out to Quizlet. Quizlet is Andrew Sutherland. Um, he's a MIT guy, and um, it's used by more than 50% of high school students, I believe, in the country now. And it's flashcards, basically. But he has got, he's got built in other other things. But a flashcard works because it forces you to to reload, right? Boom, reload, mix it up, reload. In fact, there was a version of the flashcard called a Lightner box, which um, describes, which is sort of a, almost like a card game. You know, it forces you to remember the things you're about to forget. So there are tools that apply that. Um, and then there are tools that make things more vivid, you know? I mean, for example, this will happen over time, but AR, VR, right? Things like that. They make things more vivid, more realistic. If it's cognitive and and motor then AR, VR is very interesting, very useful, right? By the way, very interesting. There's an entire industry, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Pete, and ask you, entire industry that is, for almost 100 years, has been driven by augmented reality. Can you guess which one it is? Hmm. Luke, do you know the answer? When was the first flight simulator? No. Exactly. Ah! It's 100 years. Oh. You got okay. it, Luke, 100 years, right? Because the Link Company, which is an American company, made flight simulators. You know, like to 20, uh, 1930 time frame. In fact, during World War II, and that's basically a simulator is essentially, a flight simulator is essentially augmented reality, right? And uh, during World War II, the American, America was able to produce more pilots. Uh, Japan had the planes as well, but they couldn't produce the pilots. So, you know, anyway, there's a range of tools that work on everything from memory to interleaving to, you know, Duolingo does it, Rosetta Stone, Rosetta does it, you know, uh, Quizlet does it to do uh, that, you know, force you to go through these tricks. All right. Thank you. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears here and talk about some of your favorite things. I think the other thing we need to understand is like gaming software, right? Gaming software (laughs) sort of uses another part of your brain, sort of a joy center, you know, limbic system, et cetera. And we haven't quite figured out how to work that into games, but there's in fact a nice field called uh, educational games. It's not gamification. It's more where they try and work it into simulation, you know, you're doing something and learning along the way. That's another field that's emerging. And there are some experts at MIT, Eric Klopfer and others who know this very well, 
but I think that'll become important in the years ahead. Hmm. All right, thank you. Well, now could you share with me a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Okay, uh, I chose a nerdy one. It's uh, Fear is the Mind Killer. It's from Dune. Do you, All right, yeah. Any Dune fans in the house? Uh, in terms of this, in terms of this book, I, you know, I, I, I joke, but fear is the mind killer. Anger is another mind killer. It, it can really just take away your ability to process information, um, and especially kind of in the current moment, I, I like to hold on to that. Okay, mine is uh, it's uh, the Eisenhower principle, which is sometimes it's easier to solve the bigger problem than the smaller problem. Because when you're trying to solve a smaller problem, you get caught in the weeds. So generalize and try and solve the bigger problem. And if you look at all the blitz scaling, you know, the Dropboxes, the Googles of the world, right? I mean, they didn't say, you know, Google didn't say, we'll search, you know, uh, academic documents. So we'll just search the whole web, right? Because in doing that, they um, take on, I mean, they get the exponential benefit upside, but they can actually take on the problem and just solve it, right? Indexing, you know, site site indices, et cetera, et cetera, and build, you know, server farms. So I actually truly believe that it's sometimes big, easier to solve the bigger problem than the smaller problem. I believe in generalizing. All right, thank you. And how about a favorite book? I chose one that's that's apropos of, of our book, which is uh, Consciousness in the Brain by Stanislas Dehen. And um, it's just, we don't know what makes us tick in our heads and what makes consciousness work exactly, but there researchers are picking away at the edges and, and there's some really fascinating research being done about the uh, just the edges of what's perceptible and and the pathways that takes in the brain. So I, I would recommend this book, Consciousness and the Brain. For me, uh, I'm going to. I was actually going to go for a consciousness book, uh, but I, now that Luke stole my thunder, mm. I'm going to have to go in a different direction. I'm going to say Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller. And why is that? Because I believe that some of this absurdist humor, you know, just sort of mind bending, you know, lateral thinking stuff, is very essential to creativity. All right, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, uh, where should we point them? Oh, uh, yeah, they can shoot me an, an email or, or get in touch with me on Twitter. So um, my name is Luke Yoquinto. And so my my Twitter handle is just that. It's at L-U-K-E-Y-O-Q-U-I-N-T-O. And uh, you can shoot me an email too. My Gmail is L-Yoquinto. That's L-Y-O-Q-U-I-N-T-O at gmail.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, my call to action is spend three hours a week learning something new. Learn to learn. All right. That's a good one. And just to pile on to Sanjay, be an extreme learner. You know, treat learning like it's a mountain to be climbed. It's it it's a habit of the mind to, to start doing, but once you do, it can be hard to stop. All right. And maybe I'll leave you with a Dos Equis. Remember the Dos Equis ad? All right, yeah. The I'm not recommending man. the actual beer, although <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, be curious, my friend. All right. Thank you. Sanjay Lukes, it's been fun. I wish you all the best. Yeah, same to you, Pete. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I really resonate with what Sanjay said when he says, okay, so you learn something in a book, you read a chapter, and there are questions at the end of the chapter, but no one wants to take on the questions because they involve effort. You skip over them. <laughs> Answer the questions. You know, it's so funny because I love learning. I love reading. And I do exactly what Sanjay was referencing there. And it's tempting to not do it because it involves effort. And if it's a good book, you want to keep reading and get to the next chapter. But really, that's the trick to reinforce that. You do that effortful recall. You appreciate the value of the struggle and even the forgetting. 
handy reframes from Sanjay and Luke. Again, those show notes, transcripts, and links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP600. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Mike Robbins. He's got some pro tips about high-performance teams. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.